Welcome to the H1B Guy podcast. The Stamp It Out Q&A is a series documenting U.S. employment-based immigrants' personal stories. This episode originally aired on September 2nd, 2020 on the H1B Guy channel on YouTube. This is an unedited, audio-only version of the H1B Guy Live Stamp It Out 2 Q&A, discussions on immigration, H-1B, S-386, and more. I had the privilege of hosting my friend from Twitter, at Ration Woman, for the Stamp It Out Q&A 2. The H-1B Guide podcast is proudly sponsored by RecruiterNetworks.com, the smart solution for digital perm ads since 2001. Recruiter Networks saves you time and money. Minimal labor management and flat job post pricing that provides recruitment websites in 1,024 major U.S. metro areas. Their services include automated certified screenshots, ready for upload, and on-demand storage for life. RecruiterNetworks.com. Tell them the H-1B guy sent you. Okay, I think we are live. So, good evening, everyone. Uh, the H1B guy here, and tonight we come to you for uh, another round of the H1B guy live. Stamp it out, and this is our second episode. And um, before we get started, you know, if uh, you haven't already, I'd like to ask you to. Uh, to make sure that you're subscribed to the H1B guy here on YouTube and um, that you click like right now for this live stream. Uh, it helps the live stream get noticed and, and picked up by a broader audience on YouTube and just would greatly appreciate that. Um, but tonight I have a very special guest. I am joined by Rational Woman and that's at Ration Woman on Twitter. And, um, you know, I have had the opportunity to befriend her um, roughly about a month ago. Uh, I caught one of her comments on Twitter and I responded to it. And, you know, literally the following and the followers that I received just from that was just truly amazing. Um, so here's someone that is very well respected, you know, in the community. Um, and that community that I'm referring to is, you know, the green card back backlog community. Um, those that are actively advocating for Senate Bill 386. And, you know, so her and I started interacting and, you know, began talking and, and just chatting. And I asked her if she would, uh, would come on. And so I'm just so excited to introduce her tonight. Um, but before we get into the questions and, and answer that we're going to do, I just wanted to let anyone know that if you have questions for us, you can post those in the YouTube chat. We'll get to them at the very end. Um, but the, the format for tonight uh, is going to be that I'm going to ask Rational Woman uh, 10 questions um, in my version of Stamp It Out to her. And then she's going to turn around and ask me about eight questions in her version of Stamp It Out to me. 
Um, and then I think we had nine questions come in from Twitter and then any other questions that we, you know, get tonight from YouTube. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce to you, Rational Woman. How are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the awesome. Absolutely. And and so glad to have you join me. And, um, you know, what, what I want to do now, I, I literally, I just want to get right to the questions because you'll be able to introduce yourself uh, and, and kind of let uh, our audience know, you know, who you are. Um, so I'm just going to get right to the first question. And, and that's really, you know, what I want to ask everyone here in the Stamp It Out series. And that's, you know, Tell me your story. Where are you from, and and how did you come to the U.S.? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm actually from southern part of India. I sometimes my husband here ten years ago. He had a job offer here, and his employer uh, has sent him here. Uh, later, I did my master's in computer science here, and he did his master's here. Uh, right now, I'm a full stack software engineer. I'm a pure software person. With uh, complete SDLC experience, uh, I'm currently working in energy industry. And when did you come to the U.S. originally? Uh, around the 2011, uh, February. February of 2011? Mm -hmm. Close to 10 years, yeah. Um, if you could go back and give yourself, you know, one piece of advice before you came to the U.S., what would that be? <laughs> uh, that's interesting question. Uh, in general, I would say I would have more focused on my language skills, like the English, because I mm -hmm. had really hard time with the Southern accent. I've mm -hmm. been... I planned out for some time. Mm -hmm. uh, I really had a hard time. Um, so, but in general, if you ask me on the immigration, I would say I completely expect the unexpected. So mm. when I when I first came to UI, uh, at that time, around that time, the average uh, time period for an Indian national to get green card is like four to five years. My mm -hmm. sister was here. My she got her green card in four to five years. So I was, I was like thinking maybe around that, I mean, I, it would be the same with me, but over mm -hmm. the years, it was, so as I said, like, I would have been, I should have been more prepared for completely expect unexpected, as mm. and maybe apply the green card from day one, like, even mm. though, like, we did everything we can do to apply early, but I think maybe still even more, like, there is a time period when my lawyer has delayed. Um, maybe we would have pushed even more. Like even one day would matter. Mm, it does. When did your sister come to the U.S.? Oh, she came. Uh, so her husband came in 2004, and she came in 2008. Uh, mm -hmm. Their uh, date was 2011, but they got green card in 2000. Oh, their date was 2007, and they got the green card in 2011. That's like they got it in four years. Right. Yeah. But, you know, if you look at when he entered originally, and I'm assuming it was under his employment-based sponsorship, you know, he entered in 2004. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you we really began to see the pileup that started after 2010. 
um, yeah. you know, for, for perm laborers that were certified after after 2010. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you see that right now with the, the current visa yes. bulletins. So, you know, that's interesting that, you know, as you talked about days really separating, um, you know, filings and priority dates and, and things like that and just what that impact is. So, no. Uh, also very interesting on the language. Uh, the Southern draw, I think, can be very difficult to understand. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not surprised by, by that at all. So, um, so you've been very vocal on Twitter about the need for reform. Uh, what is it that you are fighting for? So why would anyone want to come to America? Because America is all about freedom, fairness, justice, it's the land of opportunity, right? So that is how we came here. Our fight, basically, people who are in green card backlog, our fight is for dignity we deserve. We earned it. Over the years that we live here, we contributed. This fight is for fairness. It's not an entitlement, but we're seeking the justice for the prime years we have spent here. We have, like, uh, it is not like we are asking something illegal or something. We have only continued to stay here after our immigrant immigration petitions has been approved. That is, our I-140 has been approved. Right. So we have friends here, we have human bondings here, we left one home. Again, leaving another home is not an option for us. I said, mm-hmm. so I, I, want to, I want to mention this. So fortunately, many of us, like the backlog folks, mainly from uh, India, we are not running away from regime or communist countries. Okay, that's a fortunate part. The country where I came from is biggest democracy. It's not about question of going back. I can go back. I, can, I have tons of opportunities. As, as you might know, as a recruiter, all major IT companies has the, uh, their offices in India. It's not about the opportunities. So the, the, this, is, this fight is about uh, the justice and the dignity we deserve, right? I have confidence in America. If not here, where can we get it, right? If we mm. can if not here, where can be in any other part of the world? I, I, so this is this fight is for our dignity. We, in, in general, humans are not like user doors. We need to be treated as humans, right? So it's not like, okay, being here, okay, we live after your immigrant petition, but now we ask you to leave, you have to leave. It's not like that. Like Humans are not like, like I have to disagree with Ayn Rand. Uh, so people are not some of zeros. They're humans. Mm-hmm. They're individuals. They're not using those. They're humans. Okay. So our fight is mainly for dignity and for mm-hmm. the fairness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I, and you know, you talk about America. I mean, we, you know, we've always heard growing up here, land of the free, home of the brave, right? You know, and you talk about that freedom. Um, and, and democracy in general, right? And, you know, very, very interesting points. Um, so the concept is kind of continuing on this, the concept of human mm-hmm. rights uh, harbors mm-hmm. sort of negative connotations, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, do you foresee the current green card backlog as a humanitarian crisis with abuse of your rights? Uh, I would say, like, so let's first talk about what are the basic human rights. Right. The basic human rights is dignity, fairness, equality, respect, and independence. Mm-hmm. So even if you see the UN Convention of the Human Rights Amendments, uh, the first point is living with dignity is the basic human right. 
as, as, as I mentioned before, this is quite forbidden thing. So though we have been living here, or like, I know like people have lived here for 10 years, uh, living here for 10 years, right? And I might be only 10, uh, sorry, 20 years. I might be here only for 10 years. There are mm -hmm. many people living here for 20 years. Uh, right. So, so living here for 10 to 20 years, we're not, we're not able to exercise any of the rights provided by the constitution of the land where we live and the law mm -hmm. of the land we follow every day. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the basic violation of our right, right? So mm -hmm. it, is like, it is like we are like living like a second-class citizen. We mm -hmm. think like second-class citizens has much rights. So mm -hmm. if you see throughout the history where any civil war breakouts in the world is like, uh, for example, it, when one sect of the people has been treated as second class citizens, that's when the civil war breaks out in the country, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I'll give you an example, like Sri Lanka, where, where the one sect of people don't have the basic rights. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's it, that's that's the leading, uh, that's the base, that's the, prime point which would lead to the humanitarian crisis mm -hmm. right now i feel like we i mean like, we, we feel like uh, right now i feel like we're being uh, treated as like second class because we we can't exercise any rights uh mm -hmm. in the land where we live in which means like kind of like second class citizens mm -hmm. so uh yeah as said like uh, for example i'll give you uh so the primary applicant is tied to the employer right Right. He's been tied forever. How I mean, like, and the dependents are uh, dependents to the primary applicants are tied to the primary applicants right. forever. Right. If there is like uh, any domestic violence happening in the houses, see, I mean, I know like people would be talking negative about this, but there you would not say any community without domestic violence or something like that. There could be uh, there could be domestic issues that's happening, mm -hmm. but the dependent is completely tied to the primary applicant. Right. So all this is like, uh, I, I would say uh, this is all like, like let's say a pregnant person who's being employed right now in HVB, um, she, she would have to worry more about her job than, I mean, like, it's very hard like it's very challenging to maintain the status so mm -hmm. all these are like all these are sticking to the same employer no matter what in your life for 10 to 20 years all these are like humanitarian crisis so mm -hmm. i would like to ask you because you've been a recruiter can you yes then you're when you're when you're tying up or sticking up with an employer for years and mm -hmm. if I, especially when employer no you can't leave job easily if you mm -hmm. have to leave or like, I mean, if you leave the job, you have, I mean, if you lose the job, you have to leave the country within 10 days. Do you think there would not be any sort of exploitation by some bad employers or like some employers? So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you talk about second class citizen, right? I mean, and there's, there's other terms that are thrown out there. I mean, in, indentured servitude, right? Mm -hmm. uh, tech slave is a term that's, that's thrown out there. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think when we talk about, you know, the hierarchy of what the H-1B is, and then we get into that percentage of H-1B holders that are in the green card backlog, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what those those numbers look like. You, If you start to point back to where individuals have an issue, right? Mm -hmm. We're really talking about folks that have 
perm labor that is 2010 or later. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think the current visa bulletins, July, it didn't move, right? The August and September were, were the same. Um, 2009. Yeah, or 2009, sorry. So yeah, I mean, that's, if you look at, what does that tell me, right? Let's go back mm -hmm. and, and kind of backtrack on those dates, right? Which mm -hmm. is, you know, most of those perm labor filings then that were certified at 2009, mm -hmm. Let, let, let's just say August 2009 and after. Okay. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So those individuals typically, if we backtrack that are folks that arrived in the country somewhere between what, 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. 2007, 2008, right? Mm -hmm, folks mm -hmm. that worked in, in as an H1B for 12, 24, 36 months before their perm labor was even initiated. Right. Mm -hmm, and so, mm -hmm. you know, you're talking now about people who have been in this country for 15 years and, you know, you, you got into the you mentioned the I-140 component. Right. I, I know mm -hmm. some folks that have four and five I-140s with different employers. Right. Mm -hmm. Because in order to port that that priority date, you have to be recertified by the current employer you're working under. And just mm -hmm. the issues that, that that creates, right? It, 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 mm -hmm. What it does is, is it, it, it becomes the never-ending circle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, while you have an approved I-140, mm -hmm. you're still working under H-1B visa. And you're still having to file in 12, 24, and 36-month increments, depending on who you work for. Mm -hmm. Because... You know, if, if you are a permanent employee of an enterprise organization and they hold your H-1, yeah, file for 36 months. But mm -hmm. folks that are working on third-party in-client sites are lucky to get 12 months approval right now. And those these are folks with I-140 approvals, priority dates of February 2011. And so well, why is that? And then we start to look at the money involved right that, that, that's really what it what it comes down to right because yeah. if you talk about and look at what the cost of a filing fee is right mm -hmm. filing fees double that amount just what it costs to file right government mm -hmm. filing fees you double that amount and that will give you what the total cost is because doubling that amount really is the attorney fees or the employee fees that, that aren't accounted for in that. So it really comes down to the money. It's about the circle and the continuation of the circle. Mm -hmm. yes. okay. <laughs> so, you know, what are some of the apparent flaws that you see in the current immigration system? So first, let's talk about the iron in the system. From there, we can talk about the flaws, and from there, we can talk about the reforms. So the iron in the system is usually usually when uh, when, when the students go for the uh, student visa um, interviews in the consulates, usually people uh, advise them if if they get the intention that you're going to stay in the U.S., they're not going to approve your student visa. The consulate officer. So it's always, they would reply like, I'll be coming back. I'll be coming back to my home country. But the irony is, if that is your intention, why would you allow 20,000 H1Bs for advanced degree? And let's go to the second irony. The second irony is like, if H1B is a guest worker, why would you make it a dual intent? And if you make it a dual intent, and you 
I mean, the, in the past, as you already proved that no one is like there to replace your position, and then no no green card, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then you have right. to prove again on the green card. And the irony is, if they are the guest workers, why would you collect the social security tax from them? <laughs> if they are guest workers, right? You keep people who oppose all this. They keep shouting like, uh, "You're the guest workers. You are supposed to go back." Then why would you collect the social security tax? And this is like we are the victims, but we we being like we being um, we being we face like name calling, everything. Like I mean, like. Uh, th- that's the irony in the system, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, government needs to be really clear about, clear and honest about their intention. They want the immigrants, or they don't want. Mm-hmm. You can't make the system uh, like as as the points I mentioned. These are irony's. There could be tons of irony's over there. You need to be clear mm-hmm. with first. If you are doing anything if for the reform, first you need to know what your intentions are, right? If you don't know what your mission is, what your what your goal is, you can't achieve that. So you mm-hmm. need to be clear. What what is your honest intentions? They need to be honest. If corporate is doing that, I don't mind. It's the corporate after all. But the mm-hmm. government should be really clear on what they are trying to achieve. I, yeah. I feel like I, I feel like even when I go to the consulates, right? I feel like a consulate. I'm sorry to say, I hope nothing would happen to my visa. I feel like consulate officers. I don't feel they. I feel they're very detached with the values that we follow in America. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't see in them. I don't see in them. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're living here, you know the values we follow in US. But I feel they are so detached with the values, and mm. like so. That those are the ideas, right? So let's talk about USCIS or DHS. Okay. Yeah. Any system to break, uh, any organization, right? Uh, it should like it should have predictability, accountability, and value to the customer. Unfortunately, they have none. There is no predictability. They have no accountability. They don't value the customer. Let me give you an example. Uh, this is a really sad story. Like a few years back, uh, uh, they have moved the dates. So but then um, there is this woman who has aborted because they have moved the dates. She has to vaccinate because uh, when when the when the when your priority date gets current, you have to vaccinate. So mm-hmm. she can't vaccinate when she's pregnant. She has to abort the pregnancy. And what happened is later they retrogated the dates. And I mm-hmm. think around thirty people they went to court, but then uh, they lost it. Mm. Like removing the dates, right? There is no predictability. Do you see the predictability? If there is a multiple lines, if there is mm-hmm. a multiple lines, how can you even predict, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't understand. Like, have you ever seen in any progressive countries a system where, like, you get a priority date? Once you pass the date. How would it matter? Like you can apply any time. Once your when once once you your date is once you pass that date, you should be able to apply any time you want. Right. I mean, like you can't do that if you if it ret- if you don't do it, it would retrograde. I'll give you an example of my cousin. My cousin went to a good school here, and she's been in US for sixteen years. She recently lost a job, but then she found it. Uh, she found a very good job, but her problem is she's very scared. Like they already missed twice. What if the dates move? Mm-hmm. When she when when she has to reapply her labor and I one forty. What if the dates move? 
have you ever seen anywhere in the world having the system like that when you are past it how does it matter like you that's your eligibility date you pass that eligibility mm. date you, can, you i mean like any system would allow you to apply usually in any progressive countries like you take singapore like any 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 progressive countries like if you are applying for permanent then usually they give you access to your eligible after you live in this country for 5 years you're eligible once you are eligible it's up to you when you want to apply it doesn't mm-hmm. matter like on the day so all this is happening because like you are you are making your reservations for the unknown demand you have mm-hmm. multiple lines for each country can you show multiple lines in any country based i'm talking about the progressive countries i'm not talking about uh, i can only compare this with any advanced countries right so mm-hmm. and have you ever seen uh, any <laughs> any organization dhs and uscs uh, any any immigrant immigration organizations in advanced country getting sued so many times as like dhs and uscs they'll just bring up some random rule they get sued and they waste the taxpayer money for defending all the lawsuits they just do something that's not in the congress and they keep getting sued and then they have to uh, they're wasting double, the taxpayer a double money. standard really is is uh-huh. what we've seen with them a good bit you know that that's that's been over specifically surrounding information technology services organizations mm-hmm. and, and kind of their their interpretation of that Mm-hmm. um but but you know you said something very interesting and uh you know i wanted to i wanted to just kind of backtrack and, and and hit on that which is you talked about the 20,000 for advanced us degrees and mm-hmm. i'm just going to give a little kind of sneak peek for tomorrow i i am going to have a post coming out talking about h1b denials and one of the things that this research paper hit on that's very interesting and and you you don't hear this a lot and that is 20% of full-time advanced degree enrollees in STEM um are US born so that means 80% of all students that are full-time students in advanced STEM degrees in US institutions are foreign nationals. Why do you think that is, rational woman? What what what's your thought on that? So I recently uh I recently heard an argument in Twitter. So one of the reason is so after few years uh after India and China Nigeria is going to uh take that place you know why because of the population right like when you have so much population they have to work hard they have to strive hard right mm-hmm. you can't you can't stop them like actually the higher population would drive them uh they would drive them for the sustainability like so they have to do that i mean today it could be india and china it's going to be nice i think it's china time. india are one two mm-hmm. south korea was pretty high on that list at one point mm-hmm. i don't know if if they still are but yeah i mean china is one and and india is two and i want to say mm-hmm. the numbers that i saw china literally doubled india and that's mm-hmm. just that's just in rollies and advanced degree for stem this this data mhm so yeah um uh, if you're talking about the reform so it should not be like 
CIR. I think many of the senators, I, I personally feel, now most of them, I would not, I, I don't, I would not like to say none of them. Most mm -hmm. of them don't have in-depth knowledge, even when yeah. they talk about CIR. So when they talk about CIR, they are trying to think on the in the lines of the existing system. How to mm -hmm. make the existing system better? How to make the patch up? No, dismantle. Like I mean, you need to you need to rebuild everything. Like you need mm -hmm. to start thinking on the humanitarian, social, and economic values. You need you should not copy paste the immigrate even if it even if they're talking about paste it should not mm -hmm. be like copy paste from canada new zealand or something right, right? yeah they it needs should, to be different yeah they should understand what's important for the country i think no one is paying none of the senators are paying attention it's either patch up patch up patch up or just mm -hmm. fix the fix the things that's in there or like copy paste from uh, canada or somewhere so uh so it should like i i have like few points i would think what would make the system better yeah what, mean, what kind of reform would you like to see i think that would mutually benefit immigrants and americans yeah so we have to think in terms of we have to for sure think the merit-based merit-based doesn't mean like the one that's floating around i i even see uh uh, uh, the, the one that is floating around is is not a good one either. Like they mm -hmm. have to think even the better, like better terms. So, so H one B is sixty five thousand every year, right? But uh, that that I feel fun, right? So right. then the inflow should be based on some dynamic formula, not static numbers. So the GDP or economy is not same every year. Why should it be static? Why right. shouldn't it be based on some formula that the lawmakers design? Why, yeah, why we're, should... we're talking about an annual adjustment based on mm -hmm. uh, fiscal year GDP, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that and... gets into to merit based, right? I mean, I think that you know when you start talking about annual adjustments, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're allowed, so and you're when you're providing the green card, donor residency, that number shouldn't be static either. It should mm -hmm. be based on the number. Why don't you have a formula to calculate the inflow of the visas that you issued, dual intent mm -hmm. visas like H1, L1, or anything that would lead to employment based green card? Mm -hmm. Why it should be some dynamic formula? It shouldn't be static like numbers. Like I'll give you hundred thousand or like. You don't have to give hundred thousand. You can even give only fifty thousand, but that should be based on the economy and the number of visas that you issued that year, or like the earlier year, or like two mm -hmm. years before. It should be based on some dynamic, but definitely, as I said, not static. And mm -hmm. I would like the main thing is like I would like to remove any immutable factors in the immigration reform, like not just country of birth, anything else, like. Like everything, like anything related to immutable factors, shouldn't be there at all to begin with. And then, as I said, like I would like to see USCIS and DHS to be dismantled and rebuilt in a better shape mm -hmm. without much broad authority. They shouldn't be given broad authority. They should. I mean, DHS. I'm. I'm only talking on terms of immigration, not the security mm -hmm. or something. On the yeah. Right. 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 They should be only and implementation bodies for what Congress is written. And Congress mm -hmm. should be, when they're writing, they, they even have to be specific about the implementation. Let me give you an example. 
Congress can say like EADs, uh, EADs need to be given to H4 uh, dependents, but this DHS bot is even for printing the card, if it is taking nine months. So you have to even like how the process, how the implementation should be. I think when they are writing a bill, they should be, uh, it should be even granular to the level of uh, implementation. They should, it should be a, just an implementation body without the broad authority. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. And as like in any other any other developed nations, you should give permanent residency after you pay taxes and being legally here after certain years, like five years or ten years or seven years. You decide the time, right? So it's it's. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make sense like um, based on the dates and numbers. All this is a messy system. You live here for certain years and you spend you 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 you. I mean, you pay taxes. You're le I mean, you've been finally the clean records just provide the permanent residency mm -hmm. and one more thing abolish all lotteries <laughs> funny yeah. thing is national lottery diversity visa lottery all the lotteries you're inviting people just random lottery really mm -hmm. like <laughs> that is so funny and mm -hmm. i see like and uh, one more thing is like bureaucracy too many middle layers if the system is simple, like in Canada and Australia, I don't even need the immigration lawyers. Recruiters can do that. You <laughs> might do that, right? I think you know a lot more than many of the immigration lawyers over <laughs> there. I'm sure you know more than that. Why? Why should be the whole the whole the whole money and whole power is in the ILA hand, like immigration lawyers' hand? Power mm -hmm. should be redistributed. There should not be too many layers. Mm -hmm. Make the process simple, right? So. And I mean, last but not the least, when they are writing the next bill, I feel like they should include a mandatory clause where mm -hmm. they would be reviewing the bill every five years mm -hmm. or like six years, whatever. Like they decide the time. There they should be a revision provision for the bill in the bill. So, kind of getting into that, right? We're talking about you know benefits that that you provide, right? You as an individual and, you know, you're a developer working in FDLC, you know, kind of full stack, right? As, as we talked about at the beginning, um, but apart from being, you know, highly skilled, you know, what kind of social or cultural economic value do you as an individual bring to the U.S.? So, um, so, uh, if you see most of the research, like I have citations too, if you see most of the uh, crime would be uh, narrowed down, attributed to the two factors that would be education and poverty, right? Mm -hmm. So as a high-skilled immigrant, you're already coming into the country with the skill and we do make money here. I mean, like we, we I mean, like, uh, Fortunately, this land has given us opportunity to make money right. here. We have well compensated. Mm -hmm. So the crime in this crime in this uh, in this highly skilled backlog folks are like really less, if you see. And we and because we make money here, as one of your posts, previous posts, you mentioned about the EB five investor visas, like yeah, the, the one one point eight million dollars required. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we we 
we make money here we want to invest here we are very i mean we many of us like even i have i, I have uh, that entrepreneurial spirit like many of us want to start 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 the jobs here many right. many, many of us want to do that. yeah create your own company mm -hmm. create jobs for others yeah no i mean mm -hmm. i think you know just in my experience and and, and i don't let you continue but my, my experience with the vast majority of H-1B visa holders, particularly from India, um, is that they are very financially conservative. Um, mm -hmm. They invest, they reinvest, they save, they send, they ship, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I also want to find, we are good Samaritans too. Like, uh, if you see me, I have, worked, I have volunteered in an organization for a whole one year, paying from my own pocket, I mean, like uh, the commuting expenses. I've, mm -hmm. I've volunteered in uh, organization for whole year from like Monday to Friday, <laughs> 8 a.m. Mm -hmm. to 5 p.m. as if I go to job. Like we, we try to be, we, we try to bring the socially, cultural, economic value to the society. We, we try to mm -hmm. do that. I'm not saying like other immigrants won't do that, but each immigrant has their unique, unique cultural value that they bring in. We do. Right like them we do have a cultural value that we do bring in here um yeah so as you can see we have a good fighting spirit that's what we bring in <laughs> right absolutely <laughs> we are not we are not very are not very leaving. creative and adaptable has also been you know my experience and that's very blanketed but that's just been my experience across the board with with the indian culture very adaptable very creative very much problem solvers right and i think that just is something that's rooted at a very young age so want to turn our attention a little bit to you know i, I think probably the hottest topic right now in, in immigration here in the u.s right and um you know there's there's a lot of extremes on both sides of this debate but you've been very outspoken on senate bill you know 386 and and i just i wanted to ask you you know why is it important to your future of course i mean like to begin with can we sustain one more year without s386 it's very hard i mean it's even i i think like many of us who sustain the 2008 recession like people who are like 2009 dates like people who have come before 2008 recession people have survived recession pandemic but it's still going after pandemic i think everything is going to change it's going to be even more hard it's not going to be easy i would say no because we have waited long enough every day there is a death Every day, the children's age up. All that we are asking is the equality. I mean, like, asking for more green parts. As I said, we are second-class citizens, right? I can only ask for justice, right? I can't ask for more green cards. I wish more citizens could go and ask for green cards so that it would help us. But all that, all that in my hand is, like, asking for justice, asking for equality. So, for sure, like... I mean, like when people who argue the country caps are good for diversity, I mean, they don't understand why there is no country caps on DACA or TPS or T1N1, right? T1N visas are like, they issue thousands of T1N visas. They come here directly work without any vetting, right? Is that only our skin color that's, that's, that's bothering them? 
or mm. like hedge fund like i mean hedge fund you you been vetted multiple times right like you have to meet, meet the wage levels everything for t1 and tps anything you 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 don't need any of those things but mm-hmm. I, so this hedge fund we has become money making process for many of the people over there so right. that's why they make it a big issue. extremely valuable and also the dark i would say like people like i mean then if you have to talk about the senator scott's argument i would mm-hmm. say if in future congress allows the daca kids to obtain a path to citizenship for the employment mm-hmm. then it's going to be really hard for mexican kids they don't understand if the country cap is going to stay on it's us now today it's not it's us now for the lawyers uh, money making people tomorrow mm-hmm. it's going to be the very the, the the same people that he has mentioned in the article so i mean if the daca kids are allowed to pass the citizenship through employment then it's going to be really hard if the country cap is going to stay because many of them are from mexico so mm-hmm. so i i mean and also like i would like to mention this if you i don't know if you know this the previous co-sponsors for this bill is Jason I would Jason Sharpes and Kevin uh, representative Kevin Yoder and mm-hmm. now now it's a democratic congressman from California so mm-hmm. this bill has been always bipartisan mm-hmm. this bill is non controversial to begin with it's a hugely mm-hmm. bipartisan but they made it a controversy because as you said it's a billion dollar industry where they would be losing the money right and one more thing i would like to mention see this 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 is the age old trick victim shaming right that's why many of the rape survivors would never speak up they that, that's what they do here we are victims of the system and we've been shamed as it shamed and abused and name called as a cheap labor so that we don't mm-hmm. talk they don't want us to talk so uh yeah so yeah this is age old trick so but people is not going to shut up anymore yeah and you know you, you know monday i i put out a video on you know will 386 pass and you know my answer was no and i posted that video at around 2 or 3 o'clock eastern time and then 4 o'clock uh about the lot for 4:00 Eastern time is when that op-ed piece from Senator Scott hit the Miami Herald. Mm-hmm. And you know my answer not to spoil any it for anyone who hasn't watched that video um but my answer was no, 386 won't pass even if it hits the floor again and sometime after September 8th. Um I just don't think that the current administration wants to unblock it. They're going to use a political favor from Senator Scott to keep it blocked. And then when that op-ed piece dropped on Monday, it's a very harsh reality and I hate that I'm right, but that piece tells me that I am and that nothing is going to happen on 386 coming up in the next session leading into the election and even after it and that it will die in 2020. and i wish i was wrong on that and there's still a possibility that i could be but all signs point to that i'm not and you know i i hate to be that that voice 
because as you know, I support 386. I support clearing the backlog. I think that it's atrocious. I think that a 7% cap on country of origin is racist. And I don't like that word, but it just is, especially when we're talking about employment-based preferences. Uh, but I so when you said like it's racist, that's true. Like my previous coworker, he literally said he is from. I don't want to mention where which country he's from, but he yeah. has really mentioned like there are too many of you. <laughs> that's right. what Senator Mikey mentioned. That's a racist. Like too many of you saying too many of you is racist, right? Right. So right. Uh, but then, as I said, like I still have confidence. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to. Um, yeah, you should. Hope is is key, right? And and yeah. listen, I'd I'd prefer to be wrong. Can I just being honest? I'd prefer to be wrong on that. I just would, but I just when I look at the political landscape, I, I don't I don't think I am. So, mm -hmm. how long do you think you would stay in the U.S. if three eighty six were to fail, or you know, if we didn't see some other type of reform and in twenty twenty one addressing the green card backlog? I would, I, I bet everything is in the air. I said everything is in the air, but I wouldn't be, I would not go to any other country. If, uh, if the day happened, then I have to leave here. I'll just go back to India. I have no plan sure. like going back anywhere. You, you wouldn't uh, consider Canada or Australia or Singapore, uh, as you mentioned, or New Zealand? Unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, okay. India do have yeah. like a lot of opportunities right now. As you yeah. know, like you have seen like Jeff Amazon C were going there. Huge, <laughs> it's, huge it's, amount, so, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a land of opportunity. I mean it's becoming a land of uh, opportunities too. But then as I said, like I have so already we left at home. So if again we have to leave this home, I think going back home would give us peace of mind than going anywhere else. Yeah. Well, you know, as we talked about earlier, 2017 was kind of that that line where a lot of folks started to make decisions on whether they were going to make changes and consider other locations. So, mm -hmm. well, that's all the questions that I had for you. Um, you know, we're at the halfway point here. Um, I, I just wanted to ask anyone if, if you're currently watching, if you haven't already, if you go ahead and like this video, it helps us to get boosted in the YouTube algorithm for live streams that are that are currently out there. Um, but what we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick pivot. Uh, I'm going to allow Rational Woman to ask me some questions. And then I definitely want to get to to the Twitter questions that have come in. And I've got a few questions from YouTube that, that we'll cover too. So um, Rational Woman, I'll turn it over to you. Awesome. <laughs> it's my turn now. Uh, so my first question is going to be, so I know, uh, I mean, like when we have impacted, I know that you both as a recruiter for 15 years. I would like to know, like, uh, do you really see demand for STEM professionals? Uh, is it fake or like real? You know, it's interesting when we talk about perm labor filings and what is required for perm labor, right? We talk about education and minimum requirements, right? Mm -hmm. But if I'm being honest, I don't know if a degree is as relevant as experience. But what the degree does do is it says that you've gone to school and you've been educated in computer science, computer engineering, electrical engineering. 
Um, I, I really believe that anyone can teach themselves to code and script and use libraries. Um, even I can, I'm not technical, I'm not a developer, but I figured out how to do a lot of things here in the last few months that I never thought that I could. But the facts are some folks are just better at developing and coding and programming than others. So the question becomes, why is that? And I think we start to look at the training and the education that takes place and the feeding system that has been really implemented in, in India, um, in China in some cases, and, and of course other areas, but specifically when we're talking about India, we're talking about programming classes at a very young age, and, and unfortunately we're just not doing that. But for STEM, yes, I think it is a driving factor in our economic growth because of what it covers, right? You're talking about sciences, technology, engineering, mathematics, and what those cover, right? Data analytics, data science, artificial intelligence, robotics. I mean, these are all things that if we think about what the future holds, STEM is going to be a big part of that. Mm -hmm. So, my next question for you, third party hiring, uh, usually, I think mean, as an individual, it is typically seen as bad. I think mostly it's because of the tech community thing. Uh, but do you see genuine need for companies in the So, like, you, I mean, do you mind sharing your experiences? Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, 16 years as a technology recruiter, um, I'm still a recruiter at heart. Um, but one of the things I learned to do is build relationships with third party vendors who have access to a different candidate pool, right? Um, large enterprise organizations that are filling consultant based needs for project based initiatives are doing so a lot of times with third party based consultants that are generally on an H1B. Um, so I think it's critical. I, I honestly, I, if you were to ask me, I think that this component, the third-party component is critical. Um, but what I will tell you is that relationships always win, right? So recruiters like me that have relationships with the best third parties or the third parties that have access to the best talent, um, they're going to win. It's a give and take, right? And the give is this. As a recruiter, I have access. But as a third party, guess what they also have? They have access and they have a relationship. And so it's a very symbiotic sort of incestual relationship that happens um, between staffing firms and between third party consultants and third party uh, subcontract organizations. Um, I've talked about on this channel a good bit, the death of the third party and what that could look like and what that impact would be. Um, but I'm pro third party. I think I hope that message has been clear, um, but I think that there needs to be some adjustment and reform on what the third party outplacements look like. Yeah, I think there should be. Yeah, so the, I, I think the after this administration, I think third party hiring is just being hard to try. Mm-hmm. But third parties have also been kind of the biggest organizations accused of fraud as well right so i mean it, it 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 isn't without guilt right and and unfortunately you know a couple of bad eggs right create a, a, a misconception that's generally put put in a designation 
um, for others that may not be accurate. Um, I can tell you that, that some relationships that I developed with some third party organizations were very genuine. They were, they were friendships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my other question, next question to you, so, in your 16 years of career, is there any mm -hmm. where you found an excellent resource, you think, oh, mm -hmm. he's the candidate, but hiring was really complicated with the immigration? Yeah, I mean, I, I could probably give you one of 25 to 30 examples of this. I mean, any case that, that was filed in the HCAP lottery year over year had a 50-50 chance of being selected. So, you know, you file six cases, three are going to be picked. You file 10, five are going to be picked, right? You follow me? Um, but there was this uh, Java developer that worked for a financial, large financial institution, um, that was in India and um, you know, I met him through LinkedIn and you know, literally I had multiple clients that, that would hire this guy would, would be willing to say, yes, I have a spot for him. Right. Um, you know, fin FinTech financial technology isn't such demand, particularly, you know, I, I am in Atlanta Metro uh, financial technology is, is one of the driving factors in our tech sector here in Atlanta. Um, and, and this individual had perfect communication. I tried twice in the mm -hmm. HCAP lottery to get him an H-1B visa and he wasn't selected both times. And when you think about what that means all the time spent, right? But the fees, I mean, literally four, $4,000 plus as an employer that had really no return. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's true. <laughs> so what kind of immigration reform would help recruiters to find the best talent and make the hiring process easier? And you know, yeah. I thought about this question a lot um, when you and I, you know, spoke earlier, and and we kind of covered what we were going to discuss today. And I think this question and the next one are two that I really want to hit hard. Um, but this one, you know, my answer is pretty simple because I really, in the next question, want to really get into what I mean by this. And so I think the thing that would make it easiest for recruiters, for candidates and for employers would be the freedom to choose who you work for. Right. Mm -hmm. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is that if you want to work for a third party on their W-2 on a corp to core basis, okay. If you want to work on my W-2 direct at my client, okay. If you want to work direct for the client and they want to pay you a perm salary, okay. But there needs to be some restrictions around what that type of work authorization is and what that provides. But I think it comes down to the freedom to choose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. See, the freedom to choose would help uh, both the immigrants, it's going to help, it, it is going to protect the American workers and it also helps the recruiters job easy, right? Right. <laughs> but no one wants to do that. No, too much money <laughs> on the other side, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, again, uh, in that terms, so you would think the same reform would also help the third party hiring easier? Right, yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to work authorization freedom. Right. And what is that? And so, um, you know, I mentioned on Monday and, and there's been a lot of chatter 
on Twitter about this I-140 EAD, right? You've heard about it. Mm-hmm. I, I would prefer the designation, and maybe it's under some sort of merit-based system, but I like the term H-1B EAD. I just do. That's maybe because I came up with it. Um, but I like the concept of an H-1B EAD based on merit. And the thing that may be controversial and you mentioned paying into social security and what that means. But I think if we want to talk about bridging the gap, okay, bridging the gap between the factions, the American workers, American first faction, right. And, and Indian nationals, let's just kind of really call it what it is. Um, There's, if we look at putting in this H1B EAD under a merit-based system, we may need to look at some sort of restrictions for unemployment benefits, right? And that may be controversial and that may not be fair. That may be considered second class. But I think what we have to do if we're going to have bipartisanship is look at what is the give and take, right? Mm -hmm. So if the give is that I give you an H-1B EAD, which is an advanced parole document, which gives you freedom of travel and freedom to choose who you work for, there has to be some sort of take and what's the take, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it comes down to the unemployment benefit designation as we've seen kind of through this pandemic and, and what it's created. Um, mm-hmm. But the last thing that I'd like to see too is a path to residency. So we can look at this H-1B EAD designation, but I also mm-hmm. think that if choose chosen by the individual as dual intent, then there needs to be some sort of clearly defined path as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an awesome idea. I'm hearing first time H1B lady. That sounds so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, you've already, uh, as you mentioned, so you think uh, the employers not tying up with the employers would make the process easy, right? Right. So, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I would like to ask you one more question. As many anti-HMBers claim, do you think HMBs are cheap labor? Um, I did an interview a few weeks ago for a reporter, and, and I don't know where that story has gone or if it will ever go out, but the one of the points that I made in closing was this. H-1Bs are not the enemy. They're not. As individuals, they are not. The enemy comes down to the individual organizations and government that has their hand in the fees associated with it and kind of the restrictions that come along with that. Um, So I would say that that answer is no. I don't view H-1Bs as cheap labor. Um, I think that, you know, there was a recent study that that came out and and some more on this tomorrow, but it said that H-1Bs actually are making more than their U.S. counterparts in the same occupation. So I think that dispels a pretty big myth, right, that's out there, that Mm -hmm. H-1Bs are cheap labor, that they undercut U.S. salaries. Um, Mm -hmm. If you look at, uh, you know, one of the the videos from last week where we covered – uh, last Friday from the news where we covered what is the annual salary for H-1B petitions that were approved for a software engineer. And so this was across the country. The average salary was over 100K for a software engineer. Mm-hmm. Software developers, on the other hand, it was like 85,500. So what's the difference? 
really it comes down to title and degree, right? <laughs> and those those requirements, right? What's the requirement mm -hmm. of the position? Does it require five years of X or three years mm -hmm. of something else? And so I will tell you an 85K job right now sounds pretty great to a lot of people. Okay, um, so to say that cheap labor undercutting salaries, I just I don't necessarily agree that that that's the case. Um, you know, I think that the freedom going back to the freedom to choose, right, will will eliminate that that argument because yeah. if you have a choice, really, to say today I'm not going to work for this employer anymore, I'm going to go work for someone else. Right now, there's a lot involved in that for you making that decision, right? Mm -hmm. But if you have that freedom to choose, it completely ends the cheap labor debate. And we can end that based on merit. Exactly. You, you said it right. I want to make a point here. Like a few years back, I read somewhere on the average, the citizens or permanent residents would change the jobs every three years. It's the indentured servitude that's what making the foreign um, H-1Bs attractive more than general notion of the cheap labor. It's mm -hmm. the, uh, so they know, like you can't go anywhere. Even if you're working an extra hour, if they make you work an extra hour every day, they know, yeah. like you're not going to quit job just for working an extra hour every day. But still, like you, when you compare, like uh, someone making hundred thirty thousand dollars or something like that, and hour per hour, so that would that would uh, be a good savings for the company, right? Still. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let me go to my last question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Due to the pandemic, working from anywhere has become the normal. As mm -hmm. I could be here every day in the news. As right. a recruiter, what changes are you anticipating in the recruiting industry in respect mm -hmm. to the STEM industry that you guys serve? Mm. You know, I think what we've learned through the quarantine period and honestly through the new remote lifestyle is that, that the nomad sort of occupation or lifestyle, if you will, um, is, is in the here and now. I mean, I think we had seen this explosion on remote work, then we had seen the comeback to the office, and then all of a sudden, here we are again, right? And, you know, I think if we're talking about what changes do I anticipate, I mean, I think it comes down to more organizations are open to individuals who can't interview in person. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I could tell you how many times I found a great candidate that was a good fit for a job, but they weren't local and they could only do phone, video, Skype, Zoom. Right. Um, and the old style of hiring was I want to see what they look and smell like in person. Right. Um, and I hate to say it like that, but that's really that's just this human element look, smell, touch, you know, those things that happen in person um, and reading body language. Right. And, and so, um, so I think that's how the shift has happened. I mean, if you look at how recruiting teams are now uh, disparate across the country, they're no longer siloed regionally. That's a big change in, in what's happened. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that that has been the pivot and the shift in the recruiting industry is that it doesn't matter where I sit. Matters where the job is, and it matters if they're open to the candidate being local, on site, or or remote. Um, but I want to make one last point on this because I know a lot of our audience is H one B. Of course, you know <laughs> I'm the H one B guy, right? So hopefully, um, you know, vast percentage of the folks that are watching this now live are going to watch this at some point in the future. I just I want to make a point. Listen to me right now, okay? I want you to make sure that your LCA has your home residence listed because what you do not want to happen is ICE to come knocking at your door and you don't have an LCA for your home residence. I know that sounds like a big pain and I know you may not want to go to your employer on it, but if you're working more than 50% right now from your home residence, you need to have an LCA for it. That's an awesome piece of advice. See, we don't need the liars. <laughs> you got me for free tonight, right? That's that's how it works. Yes, so. and thank you very much. Uh, yeah, no. So we, um, I posted earlier on Twitter um, that you know you and I were going to be going live, and I've got a, I've got a bunch of questions. I just I want to roll through these really quickly. We're on an hour here. There's a couple through YouTube, so I'd like to kind of cover these if we can very quickly. So I'll just read them. I'll discuss them. And if there's something, um, that you want to, uh, that you want to hit on, you know, feel free, I'll answer it. And then, then you can speak up if you, you want to drive home a point. Okay. So this is from at Dasan Garov. And he says, I have questions around H4 EAD. Will an alternate interim solution like I-140 EAD provide a work permit path for H4 spouses? I don't know. I mean, you, you've started to see this term I-140 EAD thrown around to help alleviate the backlog so that you have a W-2 work authorization. Um, I would hope that if your H-4 is in EAD, that they would be considered or at least be able to maintain the H-4 EAD. Um, but as I alluded to earlier, the H-1B AD kind of under a merit-based system. Um, of course, spouses are evaluated in merit-based system and given authorization. So at some point, hopefully in the next 10 to 15 years, we see something like that. Um, Rational Woman, you have anything on that? Uh, yeah, you probably saw <laughs> so the next one is from at uh, Raja Krishna 22 and he says my question is what alternatives do we have S386 is not the solution going forward to solve GC backlog problem will there be any temp release like EAD for I-140 approved folks and travel document well it would be respite for the never ending H-1B extensions for now and again it goes back to this idea of the H-1B EAD and it having advanced parole options. It gives you that freedom and relief of the travel anxiety and the constant need to go through consular appointments on every extension or if your I-94 is expired. Um, So I think hopefully, right, we see something like that. I don't think we're going to see in the next few months, but hopeful for 2020, you know, that we we have some sort of reckoning around a merit-based system. Anything on that one? I really have uh, no thoughts. <laughs> I'm sorry to say this. That's why I'm, I'm more advocating on ST86. 
Yeah. Uh, if, if you see, like, Trump has talked about the uh, role, like, you, I mean, a couple of months back, and there is no sign of it anymore. Right. So I think it become more like political. I mean, like no one would care to fix the system, and it's really hard because the house is under uh, house is with the Democrats, and the Senate is with the Republicans. I think even the next coming next four years also, it's very tough. I would suggest people if you if you're if you want to make any plans leaving to Canada, Australia, I would suggest yeah. them like in that lines. Yeah. yeah. So the next one is from uh, at Zilu0306. Kind of confused with all the lawsuits. If I work for a U.S. subsidiary based in Europe, my company wants to transfer me, my role to the U.S., I would be a new L1 applicant. But I've been working in my role before January 22nd proclamation. Can I qualify based on current rules? So I did a follow-up question. I just want to understand some more. And um, they provided some more context, which says, asking on behalf of my German partner, who is German, works at an office located in Germany that is a subsidiary to the U.S. company. He's been there since January of 2020. So um, there were some other answers that were uh, thrown out from some other Twitter followers on this one. But I will say that Unfortunately, um, your partner is not eligible for L1 until they've worked for at least a year for the foreign subsidiary. So have to have 12 months under uh, your belt for that organization before they can even begin the application process. And that can take sometimes six to eight months to get an L1. So I think if I'm going to do my math for you, you know, you're looking at August or September of 2021 before an L1 would even be a viable option for you. Um, at EVGuy7, question. Can or should H4EAD claim unemployment after their EAD expires, resulting in involuntary termination from their job, assuming EAD holder has been working for past 10 years in the States? Um, so, you know, USCIS began accepting H4EADs on May 26 of 2015. And when it first came out, there was some mention that H4EADs would be eligible for unemployment benefits as long as the principal foreign worker, so the spouse here that possesses the H1, is still employed. Now, I'm not a HR uh, rep, unemployment benefits expert, but I guess it also depends on how long you've paid into the system as well. Uh, but my understanding was that um, that H4s would be eligible for unemployment, um, but you may want to consult with an ME attorney on that or an a, a, a HR benefits rep. Um, so at H1 Slave, any updates on October Bulletin and how much dates can move? Um, you know, we hit on the bulletin earlier, which is to say that the dates didn't move from August to September. And with the pending furloughs and the lack of work that's happening right now for USCIS, I, I don't think that those dates will move again for October. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I don't foresee that. Rational uh, woman, any thoughts? Yeah, there would be a slower from family as like many lawyers has mentioned in the Twitter, there would be 110k visas that would be spilling over. Mm -hmm. uh, even like, uh, even like the uh, spokesperson or like, I don't know if the chairman or deputy chairman from DHS has spoken about that. So there's going to be a spillover, but how much the moment we can expect, uh, that is the hard question. I, I mm -hmm. Even DHS just doesn't know. So right. they, they, they as, as, as I mentioned earlier, even like 
I don't know. They do, they they know their numbers. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I look at those bulletins at the end of every month, and you know, they're always very interesting to me. That's for sure. Um, at uh, Balraj CSC eighty one, any insight on Trump's EO on immigration, EO's timeline? You know, there was a lot of rumors swirling in the beginning of August about a potential executive order implementing a merit-based immigration system. Um, unfortunately, I don't foresee that holding up. Uh, I think it would take an act of Congress if we were going to implement some type of immigration system like that based on skill-based points. Um, but I will say that I think it's very clear based on Senator Scott's blocking of 386, based on him speaking with the White House and then deciding they need more time um, to understand sort of the impact around it. I think that that tells me that they want to punt on the immigration topic until 2021, especially if they think that they're going to win this upcoming election, which I think is 62 days away. Um, you know, I, I think that they're just going to try to keep the immigration debate at arm's length and try to keep it sort of out of the debates, keep it out of sight, out of mind for the time being, hope that they're reelected and then really look to make a, a, a significant reform overhaul to the system. So I would expect if reelected, you're probably looking at March or April before we would see some sort of merit based discussion again. Um, so at RHL 1573-8352 says, I like your analysis videos. However, I think your name handle H1B guy is too narrow. Doesn't reflect the good work that you're doing. There are all sorts of people in a 100-year GC backlog. H1Bs are just part of that group of about 1 million people. And he continues on, folks here aren't aware of crazy restrictions on H1Bs. One would have to go through the whole process of I-140 approval again if they change jobs, transfer H-1B if you go to next town. Doesn't make Im immigration system any better, fair at all. Just makes ALA rich. Two, irony of cheap labor stats out there. Indians are the richest and most educated immigrant group in the U.S., but we are painted as cheap labor. Roe, who got here in 2018 and making us at, making half of us, have already have GC, and they call us who's paying taxes here since 2008, cheap labor. Three, finally shed some light on those three things. I'm pretty sure at Russian Woman's already aware of those things that I listed, all the people in Backlog are. Good luck for your YouTube live. Hope you make millions of money and subscribers. And finally, I'd say that there's an unholy alliance of right-wingers and NAI counsel to maintain the status quo. I believe right-wingers are brainwashed that S386 would be bad for them if you analyze piece by piece removing country caps from EB will help U.S. workers. So I'll just hit on a couple things and then I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, you know, I will tell you that the H1B guy name and handle that came to me in a vision, I'm convicted that that's who I am and what my platform will be. I hope to continue to talk about the H1B and hopefully the H1B AD into the foreseeable future. I will continue to cover all things H1B as well as other immigration benefits, green card backlog, um, and really any work authorization or, or third party. Um, and what I hope is that I know that people are finding me on YouTube through the H1B guy search. And so while I appreciate it, I like the name. I don't know. What do you think? Are you asking me? Yes. 
Oh, it's uh, absolutely perfect. Why not, right? right? Just because right. people are calling H1B is bad. No, you can't talk about immigration without H1B, right? Right. So, At um, least for now, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think it just goes back to it's all about the money, right? And the circle that we've talked about and the, the misconception that H1B is cheap labor when you look at you know, the hundreds of thousands of petitions that are approved and what the average wages are of those individuals. I mean, you're talking about 85 to 120 K generally blanketed across the board. Um, I, I think that it just, it, it's just not right. Um, it, it's, it's something that's used as a crutch. And, you know, how many times have I heard, I train my H1B replacement who's only making 50 K. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen anymore. That's 15 years ago. That doesn't happen because of the prevailing wages and the certifications that go in place and the verification that you have to pay that minimum wage. And if you don't, you're in direct violation of federal law. Um, so I think that that's, that's kind of been the change. You have any thoughts on this? Yeah, uh, you, 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 uh, that's the right point. Um, so yeah. So how to find the balance between the, uh, protecting the American workers at the same time, how we do, uh, how we give space for immigrants. That's, that's the challenging part. If immigrants would stop coming uh, to the country, uh, the main, I, I'd like to mention this, when the hard hit uh, sector is startups. So the startups initially actually depends on more like personal than the process because the process is not set up. They are very mm -hmm. dependent on the person that they hire. They, are, they the startups need to. They, they'll be always looking for a good uh, person. It doesn't matter like where they come from. So they because they want to sustain, right? The process is not there. So mm -hmm. I, once the startups is not going to sustain all the uh, all the innovation, the tech innovation that's happening is going to be caught, which means in turn everything is going to go down. So mm -hmm. how to find the how to find the right balance is the question. Mm -hmm. uh, I so yeah, I think they need to come up with certain formulas, uh, everything like how we can find the right balance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, main, main main thing like you protect the workers by liberating the immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. So we have two more here on Twitter and then just a couple of YouTube and then we're going to wrap this up. So at MD 1285-5644 says currently L1 does not have a luxury like extension beyond five to seven years. So five years for L1B, seven years for L1A with approved I-140 like H1B. The fact that India is backlogged heavily, L1 maxes out and have to self-deport even with approved I-140. Can we push for unconditional EAD advanced parole for I-140 approved cases in executive order? Um, you know, that's the interesting thing about the L1 and I did a L1B, you know, versus H1B video several weeks ago where we talked about the L1 is actually the faster track to green card permanent residency than the H1, but it will require you to come here, then leave the country and then come back. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, the L1s are also in that 800 to a million individuals that we're talking about in the green card backlog in that pool. Um, so how do you address that? And, and I think it comes back to how do you clear the backlog and how do you implement a merit-based system that creates fairness and equality for everyone? Yeah, 
Um, that's going to be the challenge. And how do we adjust that annually based on the shift in technology, based on the shift in gross domestic, um, you know, sort of revenue, if you will. Uh, those are all, you know, very significant questions that unfortunately I, I don't have answers for, but will be interesting to see how, how it plays out. Uh, and then the last thing I have is at um, Jivan Drago, at Jivan Drago, if I leave the U.S. and do not return for a few years, my current H-1B expires. If I want an H-1B later, same employer's current H-1B, will the new H-1B subject to the lottery? So it depends on how long you're outside of the country, and it also depends on how much time you have remaining on your current H-1. If you have an approved I-140 and you're going to be working with the same employer, I don't think it would be an issue then for you as long as you had at least a week of time remaining on your H that you you had that expired before you left the country. So that's really what it comes back to is that you left the country before your H expired. And I think that you would be able then to file a new H-1B with the same employer in consular processing and go through that approval. So once the H was approved, then you make your consular appointment, get your stamping and, and should be able to enter into the country. Um, so I think that would be a possibility and I don't think you'd have to go into the lottery. So, um, so that's all for Twitter. I'm just going to bring up a couple of the YouTube comments really quickly. Um, so Andy P said it's become a corrupt land of uh, land of corrupt politicians and home of shady lawyers. I mean, I think it as we've talked about, it's it's all about the money. It it just is. Um, I wouldn't care if U.S. treated all foreigners as second class citizens like Middle Eastern countries. Issue is that people from Pakistan, Bangladesh get GC in a year, and Indians have to wait for a hundred years. Funny thing is, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh were one country a few decades ago. Nepal is part of a diversity green card program, but India is not. The immigration system is crazy as hell. And then we were talking about F1s, right? We were talking about why is 20% of, of F1s, um, you know, 20% 20, 20 of all full-time uh, students enrolled in, in advanced degrees F1s. Uh, and it talks about, uh, you know, what it takes to get an F1. He said that he was one of them and then mentions because we were talking about, well, why is that? And it's that Americans generally want to study, you know, music, fine arts, uh, a lot of different um, sort of subjects. I mean, you know, I, I have a business degree. And, and so, um, you yeah, know, I mean, I think it's right. They, they just choose different, different paths, technology in sort of the generations that have come through um, weren't as important, but I think you're seeing in the ge younger generation, it's, it's much more important. Um, and then he mentions go Canada's way in terms of the merit-based system that we're talking about. Don't reinvent the wheels. So website, a point-based system. Yeah. Their express entry program has been, you know, very, very valuable. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely been kind of the, the standard that, that in Australia. So, um, well, those are all the questions we have tonight from Twitter and YouTube. You know, I just, if you're still watching, I think we maybe have seven or eight people still watching. I wanted to say thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask you if you could like this video. If you're not subscribed to the H1B guy, click the bell for notifications. Uh, but I just want to say thank you to Rational Woman for joining me tonight for almost an hour and a half. Thank you for taking your time out of your day to come and voice your opinion, to talk with me about H1B, immigrant life, Cinnabill, 
386, merit-based immigration and reform. Um, you know, just from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful for the support. Um, I'm, I'm really thankful. I'm thankful for this country, too. It gave me a lot of confidence. I got a unique experience here that you don't get anywhere. I'm grateful for all the bondings, all the uh, friends I made here. I'm grateful for all the experience that I came here. So, and I'm also thankful for you, not but not least. I'm very thankful for Senator Mike Lee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, as I've said earlier, I, I never thought I would uh, politically align with a Republican senator from Utah. But, you know, he leans libertarian, very moderate um, and, you know, spent nine years working on immigration. And, um, you know, Abhijit, I just wanted to say thank you for tuning in and watching, um, you know, really appreciate your support. Uh, and, and tuning in tonight and, uh, you know, thanking Rational Woman here as, as well. Um, you know, as I mentioned, tomorrow afternoon, we'll put out uh, a video on H-1B denials that will cover fiscal year 2009 to 2020 um, from a research paper that was produced from the uh, uh, National uh, Federation of American Policy. Uh, so nonpartisan, uh, nonpolitical uh, organization. Very interesting data. <laughs> Thank you again, Rational Woman. Thank you to everyone who took the time to tune in tonight. Um, we're going to end it now and want to wish everyone a very good evening. Um, this has been the H1B Guy, your global source for all things H1B.